1: Post your free job on linkedin.com people today.
2: It is often the case that the process of the serial killers is much the same. They find that exploiting other people becomes necessary for them to have any feeling of self-esteem.
1: For the very first time, The greatest minds in criminology have come together to dissect the psyches of some of the world's most prolific serial killers. These forensic psychiatrists, psychologists and pathologists have an incredible depth of knowledge and often first-hand insight into these killers, helping us to understand what makes a monster The following interview with Professor Paul Britton was recorded in July 2019 for Crime and Investigation's TV series Making a Monster. Professor Britton is the former head of the Regional Forensic Psychology Service for Trent and has previously advised the Home Office and Association of Chief Police Officers' Crime Committee on offender profiling. Professor Britton has advised on a number of high-profile cases – including that of Rose West. Warning, the subjects covered in this podcast are of a sensitive nature. Listener discretion advised.
2: I'm an NHS clinician by origin. So if you like my drive, my motivation is in helping, healing, putting folks back together again. The forensic part of it came because someone needed help in stopping an offender. And that's how it began. So someone comes and says, this person is hurting people, can you help me to stop them? Now, how can you say no? Um, It's not an enjoyable process. Um, Every time that you are called upon to do it, you have to take a deep breath and you have to go back into that darkness and know that it's going to hurt you, that you're going to leave a piece of yourself behind in all of this, and that when you come back, when you go home, you'll be altered in some small way. So it's not something you look for, and it's certainly not something you'd recommend as an occupation to a friend. I had a patient, an ordinary NHS patient, a young woman who had difficulties controlling her mood, but she had got into trouble with the courts because she'd been involved in an unfortunate relationship with a policeman. The policeman uh, wasn't free to be with her. And it seemed to me that this wasn't working well and that she shouldn't go to the court. And the long and the short of it is that that didn't go to the courts, but the police officer wondered what exactly psychology is and how does it work. And I spent an afternoon going over that with him. And that was the end of it. But about nine months later, I got a phone call from a man called David Baker. He was the head of CID in Leicestershire. And he said, you don't know me. He said, but I've been talking with a colleague of mine and he's been explaining what you do. If I showed you a murder, do you think you could tell me anything about the person who'd been responsible for it? And I said, I don't really know, maybe. He said, well, can you come? "Uh, Yes, when? Tomorrow. Have a good breakfast before you come. And I went off and then David showed me a murder, the scene of crime, the evidence, for an offence that they had been struggling with for about two years. And it fell to me then to look at the offence, to look at what had happened to the victim, to understand the antecedents, and to lay out what became the first psychological profile, certainly in the UK. And uh, having put that in, it took about two days. Um, At first, David's team were somewhat doubtful. They had the view, well, sir, we've been doing this for two years, We've got nowhere. How is it that this chap can come in in two days? And, you know, suddenly we have this magic result. He said, let's see. So they worked on the profile, as we now call it. We didn't call it a profile then. And in about two days, they had arrested a person for the offence. Then they came back and they said, well, look, there were 19 points on this um, analysis. Every one of them turns out to be exactly correct. But we've never interviewed a person like this before. Can you explain to us how we best do that? And so then it was a question of sitting, choosing the interview teams, briefing them, and helping them to help the person give an account of what he'd done. And that became the beginning of psychological profiling here. Today, a psychological profile is essentially an examination of the scene of a crime, post-mortem materials, statements, Everything that goes towards the investigation of an offence, where many things are known except the identity of the person responsible for the murder. And the expectation is that by producing a psychological analysis, what we now call a psychological profile, it is possible to narrow down the field of investigating for the police officers. So in the main, we don't look to say, here is the name and address of a particular offender, what happens is you are narrowing the parameters in which scarce investigating resources have to be applied. In the investigations I've been involved in, the roles vary. Um, Sometimes, particularly in the very early days, it would simply be to examine the case materials and to apply my psychological training and expertise and knowledge to say to the police, well, I expect the person responsible for this particular offence to have the following characteristics. And you might be looking at age, uh, residence, type of work, motivation what drives them what makes them happen if they're a serial offender what is their preferred victim and so where would they be looking for other victims what is the chain of offenses that they may have so that if for example you have two or three offenses that are notified and understood but you are able to say well i would expect this offender in fact to have been responsible for many more offenses and If it were me, I would be suggesting you looked here, here, and here where you might find more. So that would be the the early stages. And then that would move on for me to helping with interviews. When I began, I was very surprised to be asked by the police to teach them how to interview. Because I had always assumed that if you wanted to learn how to interview in an investigative sense, who would you ask? You'd ask the police, but it turns out that many of the offences I was asked to look at were quite specialist. And knowledge and understanding of predatory sexual offenders and certain other personality types weren't common. It didn't happen often in policing. And so sitting with them, briefing them, training them, if you like, how to understand, recognise and how to uh, take evidence in an interview from suspects was a great help in eliminating or taking someone on so that they could be charged. After that, it moved on from time to time where um, you might be asked to join the management team of an investigation, so that if you had a particularly difficult offence, and and by this, when I talk about a straightforward serial killing, that sounds very cold and calculated. Although the offenders are all unique, it is often the case that the process of the serial killers is much the same so that once that is established you may not need outside specialist help to guide you through that. But if you have a more complex case it can be necessary to help and to guide the officers in understanding what may or may not be happening where a case actually is something other than it looked where it's not a murder, where it's a staged offence, or whatever it happens to be, and so you may help with that.
1: When the psychologists or psychiatrists piece together the profile of a serial killer, does the killer conform to certain key characteristics, or have they encountered the same life events? Are monsters made in a mould?
2: There is no such thing as the number 34 serial killer. There may be William Smith, who happens to be a serial killer. He may have certain characteristics, general characteristics that you can relate to other people, but it's only when you get into that fine detail that you understand this particular man. And so what? What does it mean? Okay, so you know this. Therefore, well, you can use it to hopefully prevent more offences by that person. Then you come to the really tricky issue. Assume for a moment that you have a reasonably good pro of the characteristics, the early characteristics, of people who go on to be serial killers or other serious offenders. What are you going to do? Now, there are some people who think, well, you stop them, you, you, you act early, you look to the general good. I don't think you can do that. What you can do is you can understand that at home, in parenting and in family life and at school we can all behave in ways that can recognise our contribution to the developing life of what becomes the offender and we can intervene with ourselves earlier to reduce the likelihood of that happening. It's important to be very cautious when talking about the precise background features that you find in the backgrounds of the particular people you're talking about. And I say this for two reasons. Uh, The first is many people share these background experiences, these early family catastrophes, where perhaps there are problems with the parental relationship, there are problems with displacement, that's lack of love, lack of family bonding, lack of affection, punishment. That is much more common than we would like. But very few of the people who endure that go on to be the sort of offenders and killers that you've been talking about here. It's where you have that sort of background at a high level of intensity that's coupled usually with some genetic background some biological preparedness that allows people to drift in that direction and when people use the description cataclysmic event that is often not quite right because sometimes there is that what people call major trigger event but In my experience, it's often the drip, drip, drip. It's like a tap dripping into a bucket, and a little bit more, and a little bit more. And for most people, it never quite reaches the brim. But eventually, in certain circumstances, for people with particular sensitivities, it begins to overflow. And that's where you can then have a trigger that sets them off on the murdering pathway. I think it's important to be clear that sex isn't the only motivation for serial killing. In order to be a serial killer we have different criteria and this is simply an artificial construct that we have put up. So we would have in the UK uh, something in the order of three uh, individual killings separated by time, I think in the United States it may be five, but essentially Uh, you you have those separate individual killings separated by time and people often say without apparent motive but of course there's always a motive now in some cases it it is this sexual motive and that's because sex is very important and in these cases the sexual drive becomes uh, closely associated with aggression with the aggressive drive and in some ways they can have psychophysiological phenomena so that's I think partly an explanation there. But also remember, it can be simply for anger. It can be that a person uh, has some other delusional belief. Well, we might call it delusional, but they have a very particular belief that they are carrying out some mission, that they are charged with um, removing evil in some particular way from the world. And I think they are fewer than the sexually driven Uh, serial killers, but sometimes they are much more difficult to apprehend. If you understand that you're dealing with a sexual predator and you understand the preferred locations, the preferred MO's, it's relatively straightforward to track their behavior across an entire city over a year or so, so that you really can work out where they're likely to be next. For the mission-driven Uh, killer you really need to try to understand what's the mission because the mission will determine the nature of the victim and the nature of the victim will help you to know where, where to deploy your resources. That's a little more difficult. Imagine seeing the growth and development of a person represented by a tree. If you have in the ground the roots of the tree and you think in terms of of genetic contributions, all sorts of things come into the tree in the first place, all sorts of potential. Now, as the tree, the plant develops, there are environmental influences that come to bear. They always interact with whatever it is that's coming up through the roots, the genetic potential. Uh, Sometimes these are very positive, and we all know that a warm, loving family, good relationships with mother and father, particularly mother, seem to foster a successful later life. The other side of it is that the absence of that, in particular, poor, destructive relationships with parents, with mother, and at school, seems to be connected for many people with a deterioration into a negative disposition. So instead of the warm self-confident looking at other people and recognizing them having the ability to understand that they are unique individual people as well it becomes much more easy for the growing person the child to begin to see others as a shadow as not not a genuine separate entity but to be there really for their purposes now that's compressing something that happens in a very subtle way over a long period of time. But the outcome is that we have a lack of empathy beginning to develop. We have an instrumental relationship with the world beginning to develop. Now, this can all be offset if you have good relationships at school, decent teaching relationships, good role models that offset this negativity, but often for these people, that doesn't happen. It exacerbates the problem. And I'm not going into it now, but there's a whole list of characteristics that often crop up in the lives of the sort of offenders that we're talking about. And gradually, there's a divergence between people who go on to have this sort of bleak, negative, hostile, aggressive, rejecting personality, but also with a selfish, externally punitive view of the world, divergence between that group of people and the rest of us, the people who seem to muddle through. Other people work with us. We work with them. We give and we take. We expect sometimes to make way for others and sometimes to have them make way for us. We expect to have our pleasures with and through other people, but crucially for those to be a reciprocal arrangement. Now, the people that we're talking about who are the offenders, often don't have that. They find that exploiting other people, as we call it, becomes necessary for them to have any feeling of self-esteem, any feeling of a future, sometimes any feeling at all. And they build a fantasy life. And the fantasies usually, in this case, become aggressive they become negative, they become increasingly demanding and increasingly explicit until merely imagining it isn't enough to give them the reward and the return that they want. And so they begin to practise. And that may begin by simply following someone, just wandering around, looking, imagining what I might do to him or to her. And then there is often a view that that person wouldn't like me. They would think I wasn't good enough. They would hate me, well I hate them anyway. And they're not a proper person. They're on their high horse. I'd like to take them off their high horse. And gradually they begin to do just that. And you go on and you have the rape and eventually the murder. And once the first one's done, that's okay. But actually I could do better than that. There are things that I can imagine that would have made it so much better And so the rehearsal goes up a notch. And then that gets implemented. And the sad thing is, it's never perfect. So there always has to be another one. Each person varies in the period between the killings. For some, it can be only days apart. They they, they commit their murder, they get some satiation, and then time goes and they build again. Uh, For others, it may be weeks or months. I think the victim and the range of travel that's used by uh, people who kill and kill serially is very much a matter of individual differences. Uh, some people, their opportunity, their lifestyle, has them very close to home. You have people like Gacy. Um, you have people like the Wests. Now they both killed close to home. Although the Wests a little, little farther afield, but they used home as the disposal site. It used to be thought that serial killers would travel widely and disperse their bodies to avoid detection. And for some that's true, but it's also true that many really like to keep their uh, victims close to them. And they do that for two reasons. Uh, One is because it's theoretically easier, and if they have the place and the skills to do that, you have some folks who have remote farms, you have some folks who have livestock that will devour uh, flesh as part of their diet, you have some people who are builders, you have people who have the skills, but it also means that whenever they go to bed, they know that within arm's length those people are still there, and so that when they relive their fantasies of what they've done with the person. If they have sadism in their um, repertoire, they can remember the pain, the anger, the torment, and if you like, put the hand out almost and touch the uh, the dead, the ones that they've created. The other thing that they do, which is particularly chilling, is they attribute to the victim feelings and perspectives that were never there. So they will have the victim having wanted them, having made them, having provoked them, having led them on. And they will then imagine that and push it onto the dead victim in their memory. Now having the victim close by allows all of that. And in some cases, uh, cases that I've dealt with, they don't bury the victim exactly, but they semi mummify them and they bring them out from time to time so that they can talk to them and revisit what they've done. Now, if you're looking at the sort of uh, serial killer, the sexual killer, who goes out, has a victim, finds usually her, takes her off and they've perhaps gone 20, 30, 50, 60 miles away, they have done their deed, they have assaulted them, strangled them, stabbed them, they have spent however long it is with them at some risk and then hidden or dropped their body in woods It's quite a different aftermath so that they're not then feasting in the same way on what they've done, they're just moving on to the next victim to relive that moment of hunting. There are various challenges when you are interviewing a serious offender of whatever sort, and this applies to serial killers, sexual killers, rapists, uh, but also people who are thieves, Whatever it is, the challenges are always present. One of them is honesty. Um, It's at the beginning, when you're looking at an assessment, we're not talking about treatment at the moment, there is usually an adversarial relationship present of one sort or another. If the person is functioning in a way that allows them to understand what's going on, and if they don't, you shouldn't be talking to them, then they know that everything that they say may well work against them that by exposing and exploring themselves with somebody else, they may well be giving you ammunition that will send them off to a life sentence, or in some countries, rather worse. So they're guarded. And it's very important in my uh, experience to do two things, or three things. Firstly, you do need to try to build a relationship, but it needs to be a straightforward, honest relationship. Um, And then you need to be able to go in detail over and over again every aspect of what they have to tell you and to cross-reference that with every external source that you can. I think one of the great mistakes that can be made, and certainly by clinicians at very early stages, is simply to take at face value that which the person on the other side of the desk says. And remember, many, not all, but many of the people you're interviewing uh, see themselves as being quite self-assured and quite dominant. And for them, there is sometimes uh, a great pleasure in playing the interview game and leading the interviewer into all sorts of erroneous mischief. And your job is to be aware of all that, but never to forget that you're still dealing with a human being on the other side of the desk. And you have to know, and if, for example, you're dealing with a very young person, a child, as happens from time to time, if you have a child that's been involved in killing, uh, then all of those uh, requirements are multiplied many times over. And remember, you're, you, you, there are two areas that you're looking for. One is you're looking for truly what happened, who are you, how did you get but you're also remembering that you're, you have some wish not yourself to do further damage to the person on the other side of the desk. I have been in interviews where uh, folks have brought out hunting knives uh, and a hammer as part of the interview process uh, in early stages where they would want you to back off a little bit. So not as a direct, if you say that again I'm going to hit you with a hammer, but very much more in the sense of Understand this is the sort of thing that I find myself using when people upset me. I think the personality of the person that you're interviewing does interact with their level of intellect. So that sometimes you are dealing with someone who is just quite basic in their uh, cognitive gifts. So they don't have the wherewithal for much games playing. But you do, from time to time, uh, find yourself dealing with someone who is much brighter, much more uh, planful in what they're doing, and they do like to engage you in um, theatre and games playing in the interview room. And it's something that uh, has been a particular issue, because I I know of cases where (sighs) offenders very much want to engage you. So this isn't just in the interview room, this is... Before they get there, um, it does happen that where a psychologist or a policeman becomes known more widely, sometimes an offender will feel uh, they are uh, sufficiently important to merit the attention of that particular person and they're going to show that particular person that they are rather better than they are. And that's a problem uh, and the best way of avoiding it is not to be so prominent. I don't think that any interviewer can guarantee always getting to the truth. It is of course the case that sometimes do whatever you can, do your best, understand all of the trails you may never feel entirely happy with what you have found out through the interview process. Usually uh, you can add a great deal more understanding about the person and what's happened, but the way you would go on is you would then test it. If these things are true What would that imply for this person's behaviour for here on? And so you would perhaps attempt to predict how they would behave in certain uh, closed conditions and you would track them through those conditions to look for confirmation of what's been said or alternatively, disconfirmation. But there are no guarantees. Uh, I have looked at, worked with and tracked many offenders over the years. But I find that I reserve evil for a very narrow band of people. For me, evil requires a person to come into the world with no clear deficits. In other words, there are no genetic problems. They don't have the family issues that we've talked about. They don't have the educational deficits, they don't have the occupational problems, they don't have the rejections. In other words, they don't have that background that we often would say, oh, well, that would excuse a serial killer. They come with all the advantages. And yet, knowing all of that, and being of good intelligence, they have a joy and a delight in sadistically taking, hurting, and killing someone else. Not just once, over and over again, And they know that this is something that society absolutely repudiates. And their goal is, well, you're not going to catch me and I'll carry on until you do. That for me is evil. Now, most of the people don't quite fall into that category. Most of the people have these damaging, early, nurturing situations that we talked about. And for me, they are secondary um, evil people, if you like. So they don't have that entirely primary uh, delight in what they do but that doesn't mean that they are excused because except where you're looking at someone who has a frank mental illness where they are not in contact with the real world where they truly believe that they are following a God-given mission or whatever it is nevertheless people we're talking about know it's wrong and are making choices what they don't do is they don't say, look, I am hurting, I have these difficulties, can you help me? They don't do that. Instead, they say, I have these feelings, I have these difficulties, and I'm going to hurt you because why shouldn't I?
1: In the next Making a Monster, the tapes, we have psychiatrist Dr Bob Johnson on notorious killer Robert Maudsley. And make sure you have Crime and Investigation's eight-part TV show, Making a Monster, set to record. There are new episodes every Monday at 9pm, each featuring a new serial killer. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Leave a review on your regular podcast app, tag your post with hashtag Making a Monster on social media, or find Crime and Investigation by searching on Twitter, Facebook or Instagram. You can also head to crimeandinvestigation.co.uk for more information on the series and profiles on all the killers featured. Making a Monster, the Tapes features interviews recorded by Monster Films for the Crime and Investigation TV series and was voiced by me, Cherry Healy, produced by Sam Pearson and Chloe Frost, with editing by Joel Porter.